Okay, let's, we'll pray, but um, we'll pray for our time tonight. But um, I want to pray for this, these dear souls in Ukraine. I think we all need to be praying for that anyway. Um, But, and just maybe that God could help. This is a big deal for God. I think he can do everything except this. Give a backbone to somebody in the U.S. and and Europe. I don't know if even God could do that. But anyway, um, just my heart goes out. Little little quick little bit of history here, at, which is what we've been looking at. Ukraine converted to Christianity in 988. Okay, now. That would have been Catholic Christianity, but with an Eastern um, flavor. The, the big split between the Eastern and the Western Church, which became Eastern Orthodox, and then Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all these different, they're all Orthodox. And Roman Catholicism um, hadn't happened yet. So that didn't happen until I think it was 1054 or something like that. So maybe 60, 70 years before um, that permanent split occurred between Rome and Constantinople, um, now Istanbul, the Ukraine region converted from paganism to Christianity, and they had, as was normal, um, what could you call it? It's an outward conversion. The king converted, so therefore, um, when the rulers converted, then there were mass baptisms, you know, three, four, five thousand people at once and all across the country because the population had to be of the religion of the ruler. Um, but so anyway, Christianity is the majority religion there, Orthodox. Um, Christianity, which is somewhat different from Catholicism, not a lot different, but a um, little bit different. The priests can marry and some stuff like that. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so it's it's just the whole thing is very sad. So anyway, I'm sure every one of us here are praying for that every day anyway, but just be good for us to pray uh, publicly too. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessings that we enjoy here. And I don't know, Lord, sometimes I don't know how to not take the things we have for granted. We're so used to it and we we have peace and we don't We haven't suffered what much in the rest of the world has. Tonight, Lord, I know that there are prayers all around this globe from Christians who are concerned over this, grieved. We pray, Lord, that your good will would be done, that you would defeat evil, and that you would protect the innocent 
and Lord, we just, we don't know what your plan is in the whole thing, what you allow and what you then say, I'm not going to allow any further. We don't know, we're not trying at all to suggest things to you. You don't need our suggestions. You know what to do. But Lord, just in general, we pray for the, well, as Abraham said, may the judge of all the earth do right. And so, Lord, I know as you uphold righteousness and justice and fairness, I pray that you would do that in this case and protect and strengthen and help um, and defeat the forces of just plain wickedness. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, again, for the peace and comfort out of which we pray these prayers for others who are suffering. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> now, um, kind of like all lessons, we'll, we'll, we slightly backtrack a little bit. Um, To, because a lot of this overlaps. So let me just back up a little bit. Um, and we left off last week pretty well concluding the English Reformation. Um, Henry VIII and all that stuff. Um, Henry VIII um, died. Um, and finally, in uh, 1550, I think it was, 1555 or somewhere, um, his daughter, Mary, called Queen of Scots, or the nickname Bloody Mary, came to the throne. She was only there five years. She was a strong Catholic. Um, her mother was uh, Catherine, Henry's first um, wife, and Catherine was Spanish, and um, so Cat, um, Mary was strongly Catholic, and so she immediately reinstituted Catholicism as the religion in England, um, which would have been nearly 40-some years after the Church of England had been established. And so this was typical of all of the European countries, you, you flop back and forth between whatever your ruler is. And so um, Mary put to death quite a few um, prominent Protestants, um, some of the founders of the Church of England, the writer of the Book of Common Prayer, English uh, worship book, um, burned him at the stake. Um, and so... <clears throat> That's why her own short reign of five years was called, you know, or she was nicknamed Bloody Mary. She died, and then um, her son came to the throne, who's James, um, a, a bit later. He came to the throne, came to the throne, 1604, um, and and in 1604 or no, 03, I think, until 1625. James was the king. He, first year, he kind of meandered off like he was going to 
be a Catholic. Then he changed his mind for some reason um, and switched back to, you know, being a Protestant, okay, and support of the Church of England. So a um, <clears throat> couple things um, are going on during all this time. There are at least three movements. One, the Puritans. The Puritans, and we touched on this last week, so we'll, we'll hit it lightly. The Puritans did not want to leave the Church of England. They wanted to still be a part, but purify it from in, that from within. That's where they get the word Puritan. What did they want to purify it from? Anything that in their minds smacked of the Catholic Church, okay? And I think I mentioned one thing. They, they got upset, the Puritans, about you'd think huge things, but at least two things that they got worked up about was one was kneeling when you received communion. Um, now, I look at it and think, well, what in the world? Um, in their minds, the uh, veneration, the worship of the elements of communion, the bread and the wine, was too Catholic. Because the Catholics, of course, believed that when the priest prayed, that became the transubstantiation, that became the actual body, body and blood of Christ. So you were to treat that with such reverence that you worshiped towards it, you knelt towards it. The Church of England retained that even though they didn't believe in transubstantiation. Okay? But the Puritans said, it, that's what the Catholics did, so we need to not do it. Um, a second thing that was that the priests wore special vestments, robes, and then like um, um, tunics over them. Okay? And they would interchange them, you know, they'd have one tunic for doing communion, another one when they got up to preach and so forth. Um, but they felt like that also was anti-Reformation. One of the main pillars of the Reformation um, was the what's called the universal priesthood of all believers, that all believers in the eyes of God were equal not to be distinguished clergy lay people. There, you know, there was a two-tiered system in Catholicism. Holy orders, becoming a priest, was itself a sacrament. Um, and so a priest was treated differently, look at, looked at differently, unquestionable. Um, his word was law. Um, <clears throat> and the parishioners, <clears throat> the people in the pew, the lay people, were a distinct second-class different group. So, by just the distinguishing mark of a tunic that the priests would wear in the Church of England, they felt that's too much like the Catholics. And so, there were they they got worked over worked up over stuff like that that they wanted to try to get out of the Church of England. Okay, that's the Puritans. Um, 
Well, let me finish up with Puritans. They grew, the Puritan um, system grew quite a bit. And by 1593, um, which is just before James came to the throne, Parliament passed pretty strict laws against Puritanism. And they finally said, you either conform to the Church of England or you leave, quote, the realm, which meant wherever king, uh, whoever was then, get out. That's, that brings us then within, that's seven years, when, uh, or not seven, 14 years, 15 years, from when the 1593 anti-Puritan act was passed in England in the parliament that's when you see immigration to America okay so the Puritans came over you know early early 1600s and that was one of the reasons they left England was because of the anti-Puritan parliament acts now at the same time, <clears throat> in England, there, were, there was a group called, there two groups, called separatists and or, sometimes they were both, independents, okay? They were more radical than the Puritans. They didn't want to stay in the Church of England at all. They had no, they had no interest in staying and trying to fix it. They, they saw it as they never went far enough in the Reformation. They didn't get rid of enough Catholicism. So we think we, we're going to just meet separately. We're not going to have anything to do with it. Well, that was against the law um, if you didn't go to the Church of England. Um, so <coughs> they... Um, started using this term, and you'd have to, little explanation here. In the Church of England, as well as the church, Catholic Church, they had really inherited it from the Catholics, you were in a parish, okay? Now, a parish was determined by size of the, either the village or the city or whatever, um, and you had, in large cities, big parish, you had a cathedral. Smaller cities, you had um, maybe they, it was called a chapel or a basilica, okay? Or, and then it got down smaller, it would be a chapel or a parish chapel, parish church. Um, so everyone that was in, I don't know, let's just divide Gillette in half by um, Highway 59, okay? If you're east of 59, you're in the East Gillette Parish. You have to go to that church, okay? It's kind of like the Mormons, you know, well, they, they'll, you got to go to some ward or, what, or whatever they call it. Um, the other half is in West Gillette Parish. Now, <clears throat> everybody that lives in either of those parishes is automatically a member of that parish. You just automatically are. Now, back then, the birth records, um, because you, you had to baptize your children, 
uh, as infants. That, that was the, it wasn't the county health department or the state health department. It was the parish church kept the record. And, you know, people that do research just pour through those books looking for names and dates. Uh, and those were your birth certificates. Well, the separatists said, a church should not have in its membership people who aren't personally Christian, haven't had an experience, a new birth experience, and been converted. So they called their groups gathered churches instead of parishes. Um, <clears throat> the only people that were a part of their gathered churches were those who were experientially and, and um, consciously Christian, okay? Now, we obviously don't have a problem with that because nowadays, in general, that's, that's the rule, okay? Um, each congregation also, <clears throat> in these separatist independent groups, were the... Each congregation, local congregation, was totally autonomous. Okay? They didn't answer to anybody. There was no denomination or region or conference or district with a superintendent or a bishop. or They had no hierarchy at all because they didn't believe in the hierarchy. So every local church was totally autonomous and independent from every other church. No, no church answered to another church. Okay, um, even if they might cooperate in some things, they were units unto themselves. They believed then too, it was a pure democracy, really. Um, and they elected or you know voted um, on their pastors and so forth. Um, that separatist independent group, over a century or so ended up becoming a denomination we would be somewhat more familiar with, the Congregationalists, okay? Now, technically, the Congregationalists aren't around anymore. <coughs> um, they merged with, I think, I didn't look this up, they merged with, I think, the Disciples of Christ and with maybe the Unitarian Universalists, I can't remember, but anyway... Um, they're now, what in the world are they called now? Um, it's like, like United Church of Christ, I think, or something like that. There's a big, for instance, you go up to, um, in Sheridan, there's a big, uh, still, I, I think it still may have on the, on the cornerstone congregational, congregationalist church. But that denomination merged and became with those two or three other ones. Um, but they, called, they were called congregationalists because of the fact they were independent and they, the congregation was its own body of authority. Okay? Now, <clears throat> um, back to King James. Um, during his reign, um, the Puritans, now this is, this is 10 to 15 years after the 1593 Act of Parliament that squashed the Puritans, okay? 
Um, some left, a lot of them went to Holland, just went across the channel. Obviously, a fraction came over here and started settling over here, but it's a whole lot easier to go across the channel to Holland where they won't bug you than stay in England. Some stayed in England and just kind of went underground. Um, but so when King James comes to the throne, during his reign, Puritanism really revived. And um, it grew enough um, and that people that were Puritans began to win elections as prime um, members of parliament, okay? So the Puritans, um, to jump ahead, the Puritans ended up being a majority in the English parliament and they had an overthrow, and that's where, if you've ever heard, Oliver Cromwell came to, um, he ended up becoming king after they cut Charles I, that was the son or whatever, of James. Um, they cut Charles I's head off, okay? And Oliver Cromwell took his place and tried basically to turn England into... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, some kind of a, I mean, it was totally religious rule, okay? Um, that lasted, I can't remember how long that lasted. It was like 1648 to 16, anybody know, 70 or something? It was about 12, 15 years. And, and then it ended up in another huge kind of a civil war deal. They ran Cromwell out. Um, but, and then they put Charles II, um, on to uh, the throne who Charles I who got his head cut off, his son, okay? Anyway, um, <clears throat> while the Puritans increased under King James, the Catholics declined because James began to take harsher and harsher measures against Catholicism. Once again, taking all the monasteries, taking their property, closing down their churches or, or you know, converting them over to a Church of England church. Um, and these separatists, more radical than the Puritans, um, kind of, they were still fairly strong, but they were much, much, much smaller than the Puritans. Um, in 1604, which is only one year after James came to the throne, he banned, or I don't know what you'd call it, but he, he really came down hard on the Catholics and basically ruled that they were persona non grata in, in the realm of England. Okay, um, Really, you, it, this, if, we, if you'd have lived in this time, it'd be just whipsaw all the time. Because, I mean, who knows when you get up in the morning, if the king died overnight, you know what I mean? And somebody, <clears throat> his kid comes to the throne and he, he's a Catholic and you're a Protestant, well, now what do you do? You either run to Holland or go underground or whatever. Um, and then all you gotta do is have somebody off th that king and their kid comes to the throne and they're a Protestant. And so now everything, you know, they'd have been crazy to live then. 
Um, anyway, <clears throat> this, the response to James kind of coming down hard and banning um, the Catholics resulted in, now here's a real trivia to see how, who's the smartest in English history. Ever heard of Guy Fox? F-A-W-K-E-S. Um, he was a Catholic who put together a plan um, and it was called the Gunpowder Plot. Okay? Um, Parliament, of course, had gone along with James to get outlaw the Catholics. And so they hatched this idea that they would get umpteen barrels of gunpowder, put them under, you know, in the basement of several of the parliament buildings. And, of course, the, their parliament is different than ours name and everything else, but they have two houses, like we have, you know, representatives and senate. They have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So <clears throat> they got this plot together, and we're going to fill these basements with barrels of gunpowder and blow up both houses of parliament and James and his son at some time that they knew all of them were going to be there. Okay. Well, it got found out. I don't know to this day if they know, you know who ratted, but anyway, it got found out. And so the plot was um, uncovered. All those people were arrested and executed. Well, the word got out, of course, of this plot by those rat Catholics who were going to try to blow up Parliament, the king, the next heir to the throne. And so um, that created a huge backlash um, against the Catholics, okay? So um, they, were in, they were in worse shape then um, than they had even been under, under James um, when he kind of outlawed them. Um, <clears throat> now, this gave the Puritans lots of running room because their arch, arch enemies, the Catholics, really got whacked um, after this plot was uncovered. Um, so more and more the, Catholic, or the uh, Puritans began to exercise real influence, okay? And they went to James and they said um, one of the things that they had wanted a long time was a new translation of the Bible into English. And so... Um, James commissioned 54 Hebrew, Latin, Greek scholars to translate from the original languages Greek New Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, and the Latin Vulgate, which was the Catholic translation. Um, these guys translated a, a new translation of the Bible, which today we know is the King James Version, okay? Um, 
in spite of the fact that it was published in 1611 and used that kind of language, the these, the thous, the, you know, hasts and all that stuff. Um, it is still one of the top-selling versions, even, of Scripture. Um, it's had at least, um, well, in 2011 was its 400th anniversary. Um, and the King James Bible so permeated English-speaking culture that you can demonstrate that England or English as a language slowed down in its evolution um, because all languages evolve and f phrases and words become archaic and new words, you know, um, are coined. Um, that whole process really slowed down because the King James had such um, an impact on the culture, the, the literature and the language that there's a lull in the evolution of English. Um, politicians used it, you know, you read any of Abraham Lincoln's speeches. Um, more than, or about a hundred years later, you read Winston Churchill's speeches. They are just, they're just um, full of little phrases out of the Bible, but King James. Um, and even to, even today, um, I don't know, it wasn't very long ago, I read, I think it was a Wall Street Journal, used the phrase, so-and-so was weighed in the balances and found wanting. Well, that's from King Belshazzar, who saw the handwriting on the wall. And what do we talk about today? People always say, well, I saw the handwriting on the wall. Um, the Bible's permeated still English language often more than we realize. But um, anyway, probably the reason that the King James Bible um, gained such wide exception was almost all of the other versions were made by one person, usually. Now, the German was translated by Luther. He didn't have anybody, you know, now he wasn't stupid. He knew what he, he could translate. But there was no one else. He did it. Um, and all the other languages in Europe, generally they were done by one, maybe two, three people. This one um, would have been the first one with, they had 54 scholars. And they divided everything up. They divided themselves up into committees. And they worked on sections. Maybe they would take the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, another group would take the Psalms and, you know, whatever. Same thing with the New Testament. Then they would meet and they would cross-reference. They would... Um, look at each other's translations and suggest changes and rewrites and so forth. Um, and it ended up being, I think it was about a uh, four or five year process. But with that many different, um, very learned scholars, you've, you've got a, a very refined translation 
that's accurate, okay? Um, now, I don't mean that I'm not a King James only person. You know, there are those who think that literally the only the King James version of the Bible is inspired. It's the only real Bible. Every other version, you know, isn't. Well, I cut my teeth as a little kid on the King James. It's much, much, um, much more uh, easier to memorize because of its lyrical, it, it's perfect to memorize. Um, but at any rate, um, it's a standout translation probably because of the number of people they had working on it and the cross-referencing and the cross-checking um, that they were um, involved in. The Puritans were the ones who pressured King James to make a new translation. Um, and so um, that was accomplished under his, um, <clears throat> under his reign. Now, um, even though initially the Puritans and King James got along fairly well, um, as they got more influence, they begin to crowd him. Well, he's the king. He, he's, you know, he, he might be sort of religious, but they don't go so far. Um, these people aren't going to press him and make him do what he doesn't want to do. Here's what the Puritans began to, um, some of the things they began to stress. Now, this, some of it would sound, so what's the big deal to us? But they stressed, um, Lots of Bible reading, personal Bible reading. Okay, um, everyone heard Scripture when they went to the went to church, but they stressed, of course, with this new translation out. Everybody get a translation. Everybody get a Bible. Have a family Bible, and do a lot of personal daily reading of the Bible. Second thing, the Puritans really got into what they called Sabbath day observance. Now, by Sabbath, they didn't mean Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, but they transferred a lot of the rigorous restrictions as to what you could do on, um, in the Old Testament, what the Jews could or couldn't do on the Sabbath day. They transferred that to Sunday and, in fact, often used the word Sabbath which really means Saturday. I mean, it's the seventh day, but it's, it meant Saturday. Um, so they begin to um, kind of barnacle up Sunday as far as restrictions, regulations, and here's some of the things that they were against. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Well, King James liked Sunday sports. I don't know what they had there. I mean, they didn't have football or anything else. They might, I don't know if they had like jousting, if they had, I don't know what, um, mumbly pig or whatever. But what King James thought Sunday was a good day to have leisure and have fun in the town square with your family and, you know, whatever. Well, they didn't like that, and so they started quarreling with him um, over that. Um, he also, King James said it was okay to dance on Sunday, okay? 
Um, that sent him off the deep end. Now, I, don't, I know what a maypole is. I have no idea other than I just know what it is. And you run, you go around it and you, whatever, you know, wind ribbons around it. King James thought it was okay to do that on Sunday. And that, they were really getting riled up now. Um, and they also had some different forms of worship than were in the English Book of Common Prayer. And so he didn't like that. So they began to kind of butt heads. Um, and a couple other things. Um, they changed also that they didn't like. Um, the Puritans began to use the Psalms set to music as their worship music. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case in the Church of England. And so you think the worship wars today, um, they, they, they were having them in 16, you know, 10 or whatever. Um, <clears throat> I probably, well, I won't get off of that now. I'll, I'll try to get to it in a second. Meanwhile, the separatists and the independents, while smaller than the Puritans, they began to experience kind of a renewal. Um, they began, um, they were persecuted um, in England. A lot of them uh, fled over to Holland. Um, and then... Um, there's another group that's, the, it, this gets, if you can't remember all this, is okay. You got the separatists, you got the independents who became the Congregationalists. And then, also in England, who were also kind of persecuted, Baptists started forming. And the first group was called General Baptists, okay? And they were, you had to have been here, what, the last several weeks, they were Arminians, okay? Arminians, today, there's still some, um, you ever heard of free will Baptists? Okay, there's free will Baptist churches in America. They are Arminian in that they don't believe in once you're saved, you're always saved. You know, you have free will and so forth. I, th so the reason they use the word Baptist is because of their emphasis on adult believer baptism rather than infant baptism, okay? Um, then another group in England grew up and they were called the Particular Baptists, okay? General Baptists, Particular Baptists. The Particular Baptists were more Calvinistic in that the reason they called them Particular is because they believed in limited atonement. That Jesus, the atonement only covered the elect, those whom God elected. I don't know what they did with the other five points, but they're really into particular atonement, okay? So you had the General Baptists, which were Arminian, particular Baptists, which were Calvinists. They grew alongside each other, came to America. In fact, there's still some around, but as major forces or semi-major forces, they were clear up into late 1800s in, in America. Um, 
Nowadays, I don't know, there must be at least, I think there's at least 40 or 50 different Baptist denominations, not counting all of the Baptist churches that are completely independent, um, that, that aren't a part of a, quote, denomination, okay? Um, now, um, <clears throat> I'm going to skip some of this um, because, you, well, I'll just mention this. This will hold you spellbound. Um, some of those first English Baptists who were general Baptists, some of them split and joined the Mennonites, okay? And then um, others... Um, you know, kind of ended up, they, the bottom line is they ended up with um, just continually kind of fracturing and having another group start. It's kind of like, you know, First Baptist, and it, it can be anybody else, but First Baptist blows up, and so then you have either Second Baptist, and then they blow up, and then you, they go a mile down the road and build another church, just Hope Baptist, and it blows up, and then you have Hope Baptist, First and Second Baptist, and then you have Faith Baptist, and, you know, um, which the truth of the matter is, um, the devil couldn't have a better strategy than for an onlooking world to see, doesn't matter which denomination it is, you know, you get people are getting mad over the color of the carpet and the new building program, you know what I mean? And so we go down the road and start something else. Um, in the end, the only one that looks bad is Jesus, you know, um, which is what's too bad. Now, um, <clears throat> There's another group I want to mention quickly. It's a major, major group, but, um, the, well, the Baptists become a major group, but Puritans are a big group. But there's also another group, and they were called Pietists from the word piety, okay? P-I-E-T, what, I-S-T-S. The Pietistic movement. Now, that was probably bigger than Puritanism, okay? Um, it came along a bit later. Um, it came in the late 1600s after what was called the 30-year war. Meanwhile, with all this stuff going on in England, most of Europe was caught up, especially Germany, in what was called the 30-year war. It went from 1618 to 48. Um, and it was a huge, it was a war, I mean a killing war, between Catholics and Lutherans. I mentioned last week the Catholic counter-reformation. The Catholics realized we got some problems, we gotta face it, we gotta be objective. Um, the criticisms that we didn't listen to, that the reformers kept trying to talk to us about, we didn't pay attention, we should've, and so, they kicked off what was called the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Um, want me to tell you what it's like? What, 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 really what they were doing? <clears throat> Same thing, and I didn't watch this because I do not have enough religion, okay? Uh, I didn't even have close to enough religion. I did not watch the uh, State of the Union speech last night, okay? 
Um, but um, one of the things that got lots of applause, apparently, and in polls, polled well, was the president making the statement that we're not for defunding the police. We're for funding them, okay? I don't believe a second of that. But they see it's hurting them. It's stupid. And so they see it's driving the poles down. And they care not about truth, and both sides are half the time the same. They don't care about truth. They, don't, they care about their own congressional district or their Senate. And, you know, there's enough crooks there. But at any rate, so they adapt and change outwardly, <clears throat> but they didn't them change their stripes at all. That's all that was going on here. <clears throat> um, there were some <clears throat> there were some scholars in Catholicism that were rightly concerned, deeply concerned that we we were wrong and the Protestants have some good points, but they were a minority, or they got shouted down, because they really worked hard in this counter-reformation to even patch things up by conceding some doctrinal things to the Protestants. But the Pope and, the, you know, the hardcore said, no, we're not doing that. So um, they did clean house some. The selling of indulgences, you know, the pay Friday for, for what you're going to do Sunday and get forgiven, you know, if you give enough. They, re they say, hey, we've got to quit that. Um, there are a number of things that they got rid of, um, which made things, it made for wishy-washy um, Protestants who were kind of on the edge anyway, well, man, the Catholics have moved towards us. They've agreed with some of the things we said were wrong you know, let's let's get together, okay? Well, that ended up touching off um, the Thirty Years' War where they fought over trying to get Lutherans to come back to Catholics and Lutherans were fighting the Catholics to try to get them to become Protestants, okay? Um, at the tail end of that, even during it, but at the tail end of that, the main continent, at least the Germany, France, they were exhausted from 30 years of war. Um, so in the meantime, a lot of Lutherans, a lot of German Lutherans, Protestants, looked at all this and they said, this is nuts. And honestly, they had a point. They said some of the fighting over doctrinal issues were so small and petty, it wasn't worth it not 30 years worth of war. And so they said, they, they kind of threw the baby out of the bathwater, the pietists. And they just said, we're, we're going to be on our own. We're going to have, you know, we'll just have little Bible studies and whatever, but we're sick of church. And you kind of can't blame them. Um, so they were prominent in North Germany, which was mostly Lutheran, South Germany, which to even to this day is mostly Catholic. Um, and, but at any rate, in the middle of this, these pietists were the kind of people that just said, I'm resigning from all of it. I just want to 
I want to follow Jesus. I want to read the Bible. I want to meet with like-minded people, have Bible studies. And, and the main thing that was very good on their part, we have to live what we say we believe in our daily life. I mean, when we go to the marketplace, when we, you know, and back then, of course, you had all the different trades. Somebody, somebody made shoes, you know, there was a, he was a cobbler, somebody, you know, whatever. Um, be honest, don't charge too much, don't cheat people. So they, it was a good emphasis of being um, a Christian in the marketplace, not just at church, Okay. Um, now, well, let me finish with the pietists just to say this. Um, they were prominent in England, Holland, uh, Germany. They were all over the place. Maybe to mention them um, in conjunction with getting into more modern Protestant um, movements, there was a guy in the 17... Uh, yes, early 1700s, by the name of um, Ludwig, um, let's see, now I can't remember, um, Zinzendorf, okay? Count Ludwig Zinzendorf. He had a huge estate in northern Germany. He was a nobility. And it was large enough that he invited these persecuted pietists to his estate. And they set up a city on his estate, um, kind of a commune idea, and it called it Hernhut, okay? Well, a connection we get there is in John Wesley's real early days, he went to Heron Hut and stayed there about a year and was, got very you know, connected to um, Zinzendorf's people who were called Moravians, okay? Now, Moravians, there aren't a lot of them, but they're still around. Um, and um, they're pretty missionary-minded. They still have a pretty strong missions organization. That was what they did even back then. They sent missionaries to the West Indies and to America, the colonies, to the in, trying to minister to the Indians. Um, and Wesley was really impressed with them. And I'll give you more of that later. Um, he later departed from them and they didn't agree on things. Zinzendorf, I've mentioned him once or, once or twice. He's one, he, he was one of almost no other in all of Catholicism and Protestantism who taught that, you know, there's inherited depravity, inherited bent to sinning, and then the personal sins you commit. Everybody agrees that we have two different, there's two different kinds of sin. The one you're born with is a bent, and the other one is the result of your personal choices. Zinzendorf was the only person who taught that when you become a Christian, both of those type, both of those kinds of sin are removed at the same time. Okay? Um, nobody else in all of Christianity believes that. They know that the 
what you're born with has got to be dealt with later, um, however they define that. But anyway, that was one of the things that um, they Wesley and Zinzendorf split over. And some of the people that were pietists, and in this case Moravians, um, they got into stuff. So many religious movements always, they get off track. They, they sometimes get too um, uh, fervent and lose their brains and then just start getting nuts. Um, Wesley had a bunch of people in, that tried to be Methodists. He threw them out because they were called, they started calling themselves still brethren, S-T-I-L-L. -L, okay, and that's not moonshine. It's you don't do anything. You don't read your Bible. You don't go to church. You don't pray. You just trust. But anything that you do, it works. It's not faith. Well, Wesley said, yeah, that's crazy. Um, they wouldn't straighten up, so he, he kicked them out of the Methodist uh, movement. But at any rate, um, I do want to finish, get this one thing in. Um, we'll quit there on the pietists. We'll pick it up next week. The next little thing I want to tell you quickly is really important. This would probably be the most important thing that we have. Um, <clears throat> we will go through this whole, you know, study. And that is a study that a good friend of mine um, who just retired after about 30 years of uh, teaching church history um, did a big paper on. He did a big paper research because he's not only a church historian, excellent one, but he loves baseball, okay? So he did a study, which is really interesting, on baseball being played on Sundays in the United States in different regions of the country, okay? And could show that everywhere that the Puritans landed and like Massachusetts, Connecticut, whatever, Boston Red Sox, wherever the Puritans were the early first settlers, they were the last people, even up in the 1900s, to agree to Sunday baseball. Where the Germans were the primary settlers, they followed Luther's doctrine of Sunday observance as a day of rest. Luther said, <clears throat> we, in fact, Luther took the position that they're really, well, this is stating it too much, but or too far. Luther sort of taught that there's only nine commandments. Now, not ten. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he said, not that it, we don't believe in that, but he said, we are, we have entered into Sabbath rest with Christ in our hearts, and we are living in a, in a rest. And so he felt 
that um, Sunday, obviously you're not supposed to be doing something bad, but Sunday was a day for leisure, recreation, um, you know, whatever, family time, community time. Um, and so wherever the German culture was the early settlers in America, they were first to okay playing Major League Baseball on Sundays, okay? Now, see how important that is? Um, but even religious background affects your thinking on something even like what you do on Sunday, okay? Um, my son, Stephen, spent a lot of time in Germany doing research and whatever, um, and he said, as pagan as Germany is today, Sunday is still, nothing goes on on Sunday. Now, shops, you know, little bakeries, that kind of stuff is open. But it's a day of leisure, going to the park, riding bikes, barbecuing, you know, whatever. Um, and there's a kind of a festivity um, note to Sunday in Germany. In, we know from history, um, in Massachusetts and where the Puritans were, um, things were very straight-laced, um, very rigorous. Um, you know what they would do in their services? They, they had ushers, I guess you'd call them that, Puritans. But in their meeting houses, they call them, they had ushers with either, usually it was this, a long pole with some kind of a, you know, like, not, it wasn't like a switchblade on the end of it, but something that would poke you. And they just patrolled slowly the aisles, and anybody that went to sleep, they, I mean, if they needed to, they'd, they, if the thing was long enough, they'd reach four rows in and, and get you to wake up. Um, you, the joke, there is a phrase people use, Puritanism is the haunting fear that somewhere someone is having a good time. Um, and that's not too far off because as they begin to, to just barnacle up these rules on what you could and couldn't do on Sunday, um, that really uh, had a, an effect on our, the American culture. You know, the old, they call them the blue laws. Car lots can't be, on, you know, open on Sundays or, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, that, you still have some of those in, in some states here now. Um, anybody that grew up uh, um, and maybe a gym generation like my parents' generation, um, even in pretty good-sized towns, you'd, nothing was open on Sunday other than there'd be, they would rotate around, one gas station would be open. Now, of course, the police and the hospital had to be open. One gas station would be open, one grocery store would be their weekend or sun, their Sunday to stay open, and one pharmacy for the emergencies, you know, the ox is in your pit, the ox is in the pit deal. Um, so you got to get him out. Jesus brought that to the Pharisees. What do you do if your ox falls into a 
deep well. You get him out, whether it's Sabbath or not. Um, but anyway, so the, the Puritan idea really had a strong influence here um, in America. And those were some of the signs of it. Okay, we got to quit. Um, we're still, well, we're five minutes early before the kids are loosed on us. Um, so any, any quick questions from anybody? Um, everything completely clear. You've memorized, you've memorized all of the different groups. Yeah, Rick. Yeah, I, I'm concerned about that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that really wasn't as much um, a Catholic thing, or even for some Protestants it wasn't a huge thing, but the overriding influence of Puritanism just... Um, now, all of, my, all of my uncles in Indiana um, were, were farmers. You did not, you went to church on Sunday, you came home, you went to church that night again, you did not make hay on Sunday. I don't care if you had cut it Friday, it was drying nice, and it was sworn by the weather people that it's going to rain cats and dogs Monday, that didn't make any difference. You did not go make hay on Sunday. Um, and whoever in the neighborhood, the farms, was the you know, the first one to break that rule was just considered a hopeless infidel, you know, um, because you didn't do that, you know. Now, all that's basic reverence for God, and he did happen to say that he gave us a day to rest and use it for that. Um, all of that got carried too far, but the bad thing about carrying it too far was it's still fundamentally good. Just don't go crazy. But it seems like humans can't avoid going to extremes. Just can't. Okay, well, we better pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you for, again, being able to see your hand in history. And honestly, Lord, how in the world you ever kept sane Christianity alive, I don't know. And I'm just grateful that somehow you're able to at least keep, keep us on the path because of our tendencies always to go to extremes. Keep us, I pray tonight, as we make our way home. Keep us safe and guide us in the next days as we finish our work week. Help us walk with you and be good examples of the believers wherever we are. In Jesus' name, amen.